What happens to Macbeth in the hands of Norwegian crime novelist Joe Nesbo? Shakespearean scholar James Shapiro will be here to discuss the transformation of Shakespeare's dark tragedy into a gritty modern crime novel. Why write a novel about a killer nanny? Leila Slimani, in town for the Penn World Voices Festival, talks about her pre-Goncourt winning novel, The Perfect Nanny. Alexander Alter will give us an update from the publishing world. Plus, our critics Dwight Garner, Carl Sagel, and Jen Salai will join us to talk about the latest in literary criticism. This is Inside the New York Times Book Review. I'm Pamela Paul. James Shapiro, Shakespearean scholar, joins us now to talk about his cover review of Joe Nesbo's version of Macbeth. Jim, thanks for being here. I'm glad to be here. All right. So this is part of an ongoing project by Hogarth to interpret Shakespeare's plays through the novel. What do you think of this idea? I love it on principle, and I think everybody does, uh, before they have to sit down and actually translate these novels into contemporary fiction. One reason that I love it is Shakespeare went to prose accounts and fictional accounts to create his stories. He didn't invent really any of his plots. He did gut renovations of fiction or historical works, in this case with Macbeth. So this is a kind of reverse engineering of Shakespeare returning it to prose, and that's exciting. What are the risks of doing that? The risks are Shakespeare was a pretty good writer and you're taking on the heavyweight champion of all time as a writer. And there are things you can tuck into a novel that you uh, struggle to do when you're translating a great play, one of Shakespeare's great plays, into fiction. And they've gotten some very good writers so far signed up to do this. All-star cast, really. Uh, and, and I think it's a challenge to a great writer these great writers read Shakespeare. They're in conversation with him. Joe Nesbo, even though he's Scandinavian and didn't grow up as a native English speaker, read Macbeth, thought about Macbeth, had Macbeth inform his work. That's true of Howard Jacobson and really everybody else who's Jeanette been Winterson in this. Jeanette uh, and Edward St. Aubin. These are extraordinary novelists, and Hogarth has been really good at uh, getting top-flight writers to uh to try this high wire act. So you are a scholar of Shakespeare, professor up at Columbia. You've written many books on Shakespeare yourself. Are there like strict constructionists in the Shakespeare world that are kind of opposed to this idea of, of reinterpreting Shakespeare in these kinds of ways? Probably none under 90 or 95. Uh-huh. I, I've not met the fictional Shakespeare purist in a long time. Most of us read fiction. We are living in the world. We understand that these plays were written 400 years ago, but they must reach a contemporary audience. And unless they speak to contemporary issues, uh, they're dead on arrival. So every scholar I know is excited with the Hogarth venture and excited when a novelist they read is taking on a playwright they spend their lives teaching. All right. For listeners who have not recently read Macbeth, haven't seen a recent production or read a novel based on Macbeth, situate this play in Shakespeare's body of work. Sure. Macbeth was written in 1606, and it comes really at the end of a string of extraordinary tragedies. Shakespeare around 1600 first stages Hamlet, And then we get in quick succession Othello and Lear and here Macbeth. 
So these are extraordinary, dark, brilliant, uh, uh, canonical tragedies. And Shakespeare, born in 1564, is now in his early 40s, 42, when he's writing this play. And there are things that are going on in England that shape Macbeth. Macbeth is written in the winter or early spring of 1606. Four or five months earlier, in November 1605, the gunpowder plot, essentially the first massive terrorist attack against the Scottish monarch who's sitting on the English throne, King James I, almost destroys the entire leadership of England, the royal family. 30,000 Londoners would have gone up in smoke had the gunpowder plot succeeded. So these are the months following a a failed terrorist attack that shook everyone up. Mm -hmm. And things like equivocation and fear of fifth columnists pervades the national consciousness. Shakespeare sits down and writes a play about the assassination of a Scottish king. Right. So it's topical, it's timely, and... It is unnerving in a lot of ways. It may be the darkest of his tragedies along with Lear. What else distinguishes it from his other work? I think what is the finest attribute of Macbeth is the relationship between Macbeth and Lady Macbeth. Mm -hmm. All Shakespeare tragedies straddle a political story and a domestic story. And sometimes directors stress the domestic. You'll see that in Hamlet productions in particular. Sometimes they'll stress the political. You have the incredible backstory that's never spoken of in Macbeth that forms the bond of what is, to me, the most powerful marriage in Shakespeare. There are other important marriages, but the bond between Macbeth and Lady Macbeth is extraordinary and underspoken. We don't know whether they lost children. It seems to have happened. We don't know what their marriage, how long their marriage has been and what it's been like. But this is an extraordinary aspect of this play. At the same time, it's a story with national political succession issues. Who's going to reign in Scotland? A man kills the reigning king, and assumes his throne, and we want to know what's going to happen to him. So there is the political, there is the domestic, both matter. Shakespeare is able to balance that or get both into the play in ways that contemporary dramatists and novelists struggle to reproduce. Do you think that that Nesbo successfully gets at the core of what this play is about? I think Nesbo is the greatest contemporary writer of the thriller. Mm -hmm. And he understands that Macbeth is the great granddaddy of the thriller, the murder mystery. Uh, and it is. Yeah. And he gets that as well as any writer can. But the genre in which he's writing is really not about marriages. So there is always a cost and always a price to pay when you are turning a Shakespeare play into something else, into a certain kind of novel, into a literary novel, into a thriller. I think the the only real challenge not fully met, and necessarily so, is the backstory of Macbeth and Lady, as he calls her in this novel. 
still powerfully drawn characters, but, and I should say, directors struggle to get both Mm -hmm. of these. It's not as if if you're using Shakespeare's words, it comes automatically. Great actors are thrown together on stage as they are right now at the National Theater and the Royal Shakespeare Company, and they're thrilling to watch. But most critics have felt they haven't scaled the Everest of that relationship between the Macbeths. So he chooses the the political over the domestic. He chooses the political and the social. Mm -hmm. And he does it to me quite brilliantly by locating this story, not in 11th century Scotland, but in the 1970s, early 70s, in in an unnamed town in Scotland or city. It could be Glasgow. It could be a combination of them, which bears all the hallmarks of the opioid Addicted parts of America today, gang wars, alcoholism, shortened life, and historians even speak of of this Glasgow effect in Mm -hmm. which people from these areas seem to die younger and lead more miserable lives. And he finds a perfect equivalent in that to the murky world of Shakespeare's medieval tragedy, also not easy to do, and a brilliant move on Nesbo's part. That, to me, was brilliant and thrilling to follow. So he made this into something that speaks to 2018 as much as it speaks to 1606, as much as it speaks to 11th century Scotland. So you mentioned alcoholism and drug warfare, and a lot of this also is about drugs, and in particular, a drug that he calls in the novel The Brew, which kind of does two things. Samples of The Brew will not be distributed at bookstores, I think. It seems pretty high-dose kind of drug. And what's wonderful about that is you have the witches with their cauldron and Macbeth throwing all this stuff into it, creating this brew. Mm-hmm. And Nesbo decides to call the drug everybody, including Macbeth, gets hooked on mm-hmm. the brew. But it's also uh, a play about all kinds of addiction, including the addiction to power. And much as in Shakespeare, Macbeth is an ambitious man. Right. And the two are fused, the addiction to drugs, which keeps people down, and the addiction to drugs and to power, which propels ambitious men like Macbeth. To put everyone else down. To keep everybody in place and to amass power. So the brew is one example of how he deals with elliptically the aspects of the supernatural in Macbeth. Any other, what else does he do with that, with the witches? And You know, Hecate is uh, uh, this mysterious character that it seems another playwright collaborated with Shakespeare, Middleton, uh, added at a certain point to Shakespeare's text. And some directors now cut it. Nesbo decides to make much of it. And without giving anything away, he fills out a number of characters who are only sketched out in Shakespeare. And the reason why Shakespeare is one of Shakespeare's shortest plays, his shortest tragedy, is uh, a novel that reaches almost 500 pages is because Nesbo really runs with the minor characters who we only glimpse in Shakespeare but become fully-fledged characters. And that's one of the ways in which he succeeds really in imparting his own style and vision and uh, storytelling on a really enigmatic play that 
leaves more questions dangling than most. It's interesting because you wouldn't have expected this novel to be so long necessarily, but I think it may be the longest among the, the Hogarth Shakespeare series so far because you have, as you mentioned, the shortest play. You have Joe Nesbo, who is known for fast-paced thrillers, and yet he makes this decision to write a very fully fleshed-out novel how, how successful is that? Do, do you think that was a good decision? It's a really good question, and I think it's going to depend on what kind of reader is going to be picking this book up. There are tens of thousands of what I would call genre fiction readers, people who read detective stories or thrillers for every Shakespeare scholar out there who's going to read this. I think the challenge for readers is to suspend a certain kind of judgment – I don't read a lot of genre fiction and I don't bring the sets of expectations that those readers will bring. I think thriller say, readers This isn't this isn't Nesbo. <laughs> where Who is, is this my guy? Mo- right. exactly <laughs> why does this happen? How come this doesn't conform? You know, the expectations of people who read detective stories or thrillers are really sharp. So they're going to have to put a little of that aside mm-hmm. and immerse themselves into let's just say, a more multidimensional story than they might ordinarily be used to. And readers of what we might call literary fiction, as if these distinctions matter, uh, will also have to accept conventions that they're not used to. So uh, I, I, I think that it's a great novel, and I think that readers uh, will have to find their way into it in ways that are different than they usually uh, expect. Had you read a lot of Nesbo before reading this? I've not. I've read a little Nesbo. And again, I I tend to read people who've been dead for a long, long time. It's shocking. Uh, it's an occupational hazard. <laughs> so I will pick up contemporary writers. You know, I read Comtoy Bean. I read... Uh, a lot of Irish writers right now who I find very powerful and a lot of Brooklyn writers. Although if you just read the top 100 Brooklyn writers, you could do nothing else. Yes, that's a full-time occupation. But I tend to read writers who write in English because I'm interested in the language as much as anything else. Nesbo, although he has a terrific translator, is a Norwegian writer. If I read Norwegian, I might feel differently. Does he do anything to capture the essence of Shakespeare's language in in the novel? I was very curious about that. And I have to say that uh, it's very difficult to drop in Shakespearean quotations. Uh, I think when I was younger, I probably tried this on dates unsuccessfully. <laughs> uh, it's, it's more difficult to do. Pro dating novel. tip here. Do not. Uh, the the answer is there are traces of Shakespeare's language mm-hmm. and they're thrilling to stumble upon. They're underplayed, I think, wisely. And uh, in terms of the, the language and the style of a thriller, uh, they could really stick out and they don't. But they are used selectively and effectively. You mentioned earlier that Nesbo clearly, you know, has read Macbeth, grew up with it. Um, were there aspects, were there little, like, hints for the Macbeth insider sort of peppered throughout? Did you find yourself thinking, like, the average reader will probably not understand that reference or get it, but... That's a, that's that's one of the things I was thinking a lot about while writing this review. Uh, and as I said in the review, pretty much everybody in America knows this plot unless they slept through most of most of 10th grade English. So it's a familiar story, but it's not necessarily uh, 
of the story that you fully grasp in 10th grade English. The story of this marriage uh, is one that uh, means a lot more to people who have been in a marriage or uh, a partnership for a long time uh, than to a, a high school student. Uh, uh, and there are other aspects of it like ambition. I've taught this play to 80-year-olds in the South who describe the driving ambition that has wrecked their lives. Mm -hmm. And they are better readers than my undergraduates. So uh, I, I think there are elements of this story that will appeal to different kinds of readers for a very short play and for a very simple story. There is an enormous amount going on. What is the nature of evil? What motivates people to do bad things? Can a community respond to the horrors of an ambitious ruler who is destroying political norms? These are big questions, and to his credit, Nesbo doesn't dodge them. What about the play Macbeth interests you most? That, too, is an extraordinary uh, difficult question to answer. At times, I think that the story of the central relationship uh, matters to me most. At other times, I'm obsessed, and I wrote a book on the year of Lear, which is also about the year of Macbeth, about the ways in which Shakespeare is able to translate the anxieties of his time into a brilliant play. The other is how do you have any kind of political resolution and where does evil come from? And those seem to be enormous questions, but they're questions that keep me up at night. And reading Nesbo's interpretation of Macbeth, what do you sense is the aspect of the play that interests him most? I think he's probably least interested in the marriage. Mm -hmm. And he doesn't give it as much of a backstory, only a few years, compared to other relationships. I think he's interested in the effects of ambition on an individual and what drives the central character. And towards the end of the... And he's also interested in society. He's mm -hmm. interested in what are the conditions that allow for drug abuse, for gang warfare, for the disintegration of social norms. Those things I found very, very compelling in this in this novel. Well, it sounds like, too, in setting it in... Uh Glasgow or a Glaswegian kind of city in the 1970s, he's both reflecting on the period that Shakespeare was writing about in Macbeth, as well as on contemporary, perhaps America more than any other country. Even if he wasn't, that's what I think a lot of American readers will take away. Our Norwegians may see it differently. <laughs> this is not a Norwegian landscape. Mm -hmm. there, there were actually... Uh, uh, photographic series taken of Glasgow in the early 70s that couldn't be shown for 30 years because they were so harrowing. And I had a chance to look that up and investigating, doing some background reading uh, for this review. I think Nesbo has to retain his fan base, as they say. Right. And I think he's attempting to reach readers like me who ordinarily wouldn't pick up a thriller and were thrilled to do so. You think you might pick up another Joe Nesbo novel? I will. Absolutely. What of the, um, there are obviously many plays left uh, to tackle in this series, and I don't know uh, whether they're going to be completists, but what are you most looking forward to? Which novelization? That is uh, uh, a matter of finding the right fit. I don't think it's 
Coriolanus or Pericles or comedy of errors that matter. It's finding a writer, uh, let's say, persuading Gary Steingart to do one of the comedies. You know, what happens when you put him together with comedy of errors or A Midsummer Night's Dream? Uh, the unpredictable connections between the talent that's out there. And we live in a very talent-rich fictional environment and these plays. And what I'm happy about really so far is you have writers, uh, uh, Jeanette on The Winter's Tale is a good example, who've lived with these plays, who've Mm -hmm. discovered themselves in these plays. And uh, I'm hoping the next generation is as steeped in Shakespeare because it's always about a conversation between writers. In this case, a writer who's been dead for 400 years but still lives in the consciousness of contemporary fiction writers. Is there a dream match you'd love to see? Oh, God. As soon as I say it, I'll be chastised by all my friends for not mentioning them. There's a lot of talent out there, and there are probably 30 plays unspoken for at this point. What a diplomatic answer. All right. Speaking of diplomacy, you're working on a book right now um, about Shakespeare in contemporary America. I imagine that part of that is about the divide or polarization of America. What's the book that you're writing? It is. The NEH gave me a fellowship this year to write a book on Shakespeare in America. Long may it live, the NEH. Uh, Long, long (laughs) may it live. And I'm grateful for the time. I'm really going back to the early 19th century when Everyone read Shakespeare, but mm-hmm. Shakespeare spoke to all social classes across across the nation. We have a lot of difficulty in this country speaking to each other about the things that most divide us. Race, immigration, the name two good examples. Uh, and we've always had that difficulty. Shakespeare is the vehicle uh, or the proxy for Americans to negotiate their differences. So 100 years ago, when immigration was last an issue in this city, we staged a play about Caliban that was a stand-in, really, for the immigration question. When John Quincy Adams, our sixth president, was struggling to deal with issues of miscegenation, he writes an essay on Desdemona marrying a black man. Mm -hmm. What you can't say directly, you will say through Shakespeare. I'm just struggling to understand how we got to this point in our nation's history, and Shakespeare's allowing me to do that, and I hope to share that uh, two years from today when the book comes out. All right. Well, if you're going to talk about a great match between uh, the right novelist and the right Shakespeare play, we have the same challenge with our reviews, the right reviewer for the right book. So I think you couldn't ask for better than James Shapiro on Macbeth by Joe Nesbo. Jim, thanks so much for being here. Thanks, and thanks for having me review it. James Shapiro reviewed Macbeth by Joe Nesbo on the cover of this week's book review. We are very lucky to have here in the studio Leila Slimani, who is the author most recently of the book The Perfect Nanny, which came out in January, and she is here for the Penn World Voices Festival and for another leg of her American tour. Leila, thanks for being here. Thank you. So last night you were the opening for the Penn World Voices Festival. Who are you talking to? And to Adam Gupnik, mm-hmm. the journalist, and I was very anxious because it was such a big thing for me to be in New York and to speak in front of this audience, but it went well, and I was very, very happy to do it. Do you have festivals like this in France? Are there equivalents? 
Yes, we have. Yes, uh, actually, we have a lot of uh, festivals of literature in France, so you can find whatever you want, whatever kind of literature festival. But the response to the book, um, and we'll talk about the book itself, is a little bit different country to country. But let's go back to actually before the book. You started off as a writer, as a journalist. When did What were you doing as a journalist? I was a reporter in the Maghreb, mostly in Tunisia, Algeria, and Morocco. And I was mostly dealing with society's topics like uh, uh, gender inequalities, mm -hmm. like education, things like this in Morocco. And when, why did you decide to move from journalism to fiction? I was traveling a lot as a reporter and I just had a little baby and it was more and more difficult to travel and to be with my son. And uh, it was very hard. It was just after the Arab Spring and I was working a lot. And, you know, I was always telling my friends, you know, one day I'm going to write a novel. And um, I said to myself, you know, maybe one day you will be 50 and still saying to your friends, one day I'm going to write a novel. So I didn't want to have regrets. So I said, okay, I'm going to take two years, mm -hmm. try to write a novel. If it works, it works. If it doesn't work, I will never speak again of this <laughs> novel I want to write. And it worked. It worked. And the first novel was In the Garden of the Ogre. Yes. So what's interesting about that book and about The Perfect Nanny is that They both came out of news stories. Yes, they did. But maybe because I'm a journalist and I read a lot of newspaper and I'm very interested in the uh, what we call les faits divers. Uh, so I don't know how you say in, in, in English, les faits divers. So maybe it influenced me, but um, I don't know. You, in France, actually, I think that there is a tradition of uh, writers who write, who are inspired by the, the reality and then try just to imagine and to build a fiction. So it's not so unusual in France. What other writers do that? You know, if you if you look at the classic literature, for example, André Gide or uh, Flaubert, they were inspired by true stories, even Tolstoy. Zola. Yeah, Zola. Uh, Anna Karenin comes from a true story. Zola, when he wrote Germinal, the beginning of Germinal, it's because of a true story, because of a strike uh, in the, the mine district. So I think that it's pretty usual. And now you also have the kind of the blurring of fiction and nonfiction that writers like Emmanuel Carrera are doing. As yes, well. exactly. But Emmanuel Carrière is doing a very precise uh, uh, investigation on reality and very often he meets the, the real characters of his book. So it's very particular and I love uh, his, uh, his work. Well, listeners of the podcast know that everyone here at the Book Review is slightly obsessed with Emmanuel Carrera. So we won't go off into that <laughs> tangent too much since we've talked about it plenty already. But let's talk about your first novel just for a moment because that was inspired by what news story? By the DSK, Dominique Strauss-Kahn affair, I was breastfeeding my son. It was three in the morning and I was look, watching TV because I was always afraid of uh, getting asleep when I was breastfeeding my son. And I saw the face of Dominique Strauss-Kahn, who was supposed to become the next French president. At this time, everyone was speaking about him and he was so su successful and he I, I saw this image and I, now when I remember this, it was so, so sad and so dark. And this idea that this powerful man can lose everything in one second because of what they call later the sex addiction that he had. I was fascinated by this pathology, this disease. I've never heard about it before. And so I read a lot, a lot about the sex addiction. And that's why I decided to, to write a novel about a woman who is a sex addict. So that was a very clever twist to have your protagonist be a woman. 
Yeah, but for me, it was obvious. I had the idea of building a book about uh, a sort of an anti-hero. I wanted a woman who was not a good woman, a nice woman, who was not a lover or a mother. I wanted a woman who, were very dark, who was very dark, who had flaws, who were lying. So for me, it was more interesting to try to build a, a character of a very different uh, woman as the, the woman we are used to, to read in literature. Why do you think, what drew you to that, to having that sort of anti-hero woman? For me, it's more interesting. I think that because maybe because the, the great character that we know in the classic literature was built and constructed by men. Mm-hmm. And maybe they had more uh, fantasies about women who are uh, lovers and who are obsessed with passion. And I think that maybe as a woman, I wanted to to say that we we are not as good as they imagine. And that maybe equality goes also with the fact that we have the same defaults. Can you say defaults? Yes, faults. Faults. We have the same faults as men. Mm -hmm. And I think it's very important to say that, that we are not only saints and uh, good mothers and and good lovers. And perhaps there's a little bit more nuance even to those darker characters when imagined by a woman than... Exactly, exactly. And the fact that she's a sex addict or an infomaniac, it was very tricky for me because I didn't want the the reader to judge her or just to say, okay, she's she's a whore, right. if you know what I mean. So I wanted the reader to try to understand her and to have empathy for her and to understand that the sex addiction, it's not only people who want to have a lot of sex. It's not about this. It's people who sometimes feel very lonely and who are completely lost. It's interesting to think of, of Deska, of Dominique Strauss-Kahn as someone like that. And also, you know, those two terms, nymphomaniac and sex addict, have very different kind of connotations. Yeah. All right. So you picked another dark female character for your next book. What was the news story that inspired The Perfect Nanny? You know, at the beginning, it was not the news story that inspired me because I was raised by, by a nanny in Morocco. She, I, I called her Muima, which means uh, little mother in uh, in Moroccan, and she was like a mother to me. She 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 was very very tender with me, and she was living with us in the the house. She was not married, and she she didn't have children uh, herself. And um, I can remember that even as a little child, when I was seven, maybe or eight. I could feel that she had a very ambiguous position in our home because she was living in our house, but I knew that it was not her house. Mm -hmm. And everyone was telling her, oh, Mwima, you're a member of the family. But I knew that she was not a real member of of the family. So... I wanted in a certain way to explore this this very ambiguous position. And then I became a mother myself and I hired a nanny mm-hmm. just before beginning the, the book. And I felt it, it it was very weird when I did the interviews with those women who were older than me. And very often they were mother themselves and they had much more experience about life than I did. And so I wanted to tell the story of those invisible women. But when I began the first version of the book, I discovered very quickly that my book was very boring Mm -hmm. because uh, the life of a nanny is boring. But it's interesting because here journalistically in the States, we've become interested recently in what the lives of these women are like. So there is a kind of current fascination with the fact that that people don't think 
about these women and, and the position they hold and yes, the power but they there, have. Yes, there is a difference between journalism and a novel because in a novel you have to build a sort of a narrative tension mm -hmm. and um, I couldn't find what will make this narrative tension and when I discovered um, the New York case, the, the nanny who killed the, the two children, I had the idea of the murder. I had the idea of beginning by the murder. This was the murder of the Krim yeah, children. exactly. And right now, actually, today, as we speak, the court is going to hear the closing arguments in that oh, case. Wow. So the That's timing... That's very weird, you know. Yeah. Yeah. Did the, you think about that when you found out that the timing was... Yes, you know, it's very, it's very strange how... Life sometimes meets fiction and, and then this book exists and now I'm in New York to speak about this book and the trial at the same time. And yesterday I, I met a man who said, you know, I was supposed to be a, ju a jury, uh, to, to belong to the jury for this uh, for this case. And I met, met him just in an event. So it's very, very weird. Wow. Yeah. So for those who aren't familiar with the case, this is the story of the, an Upper West Side couple who had three children. The name of the couple was the, the Crims. And while the mother was taking, I think, the middle child to swim class, the nanny uh, who was taking care of them killed very brutally by knife the other two children and then attempted to kill herself but was discovered in the act and survived and is now on trial in New York for murder and is pleaded, has pleaded insanity. What do you think? Or does it not occupy you? No, it doesn't. You know, when I began to, to write the book, I read a lot about those kind of cases uh, in Strasbourg, for example, there there is a very famous uh, very famous case of a nanny who who killed a, a child. I was inspired too by the Louise Woodward case, and mm -hmm. that's why I decided to call the nanny Louise because I was very shocked by the fact that the defense that the defense lawyer, the, the lawyer of Louise, he decided to attack the mother and to say in a certain way that's your fault if she killed the, the, the child because you were too busy working and you were not taking care of your own child. So if you want nothing to happen to to a child, you should take care of uh, of uh, your child yourself. So I think it's very cruel and very misogynistic. So that's why I decided to call her Louise. So I was not interested in one case in particular. I, I read a lot of different uh, different cases. And in the book, you you make some very interesting choices. For one, you go into you, you Louise is sort of the the primary figure in it for a good part of the book. You sort of have the mother's perspective, and then you also have Louise. Did you know that you would be sort of shifting the the view when you started, or how did you figure out that kind of structure so that you could show? the different points of view? During the writing, because at the beginning I didn't know how I was going to, how the structure was going to, to be, but um, it appears... It appeared to me that I, I wanted at the end of the book the reader to be very confused. I wanted him to ask himself, so who was she? Who was Louise? I don't understand. She's very mysterious. I can't really say why she did that and who she really was. Because you know when you hire a nanny, it's very paradoxical because at the same time you trust her and you say you're going to take care of my children, but at the same time you don't know her. Yeah. You know nothing about her. Right. You don't know her past. You don't know her psychology. You don't know... You know nothing. She's so, someone that only exists in relationship to you. Exactly. So I wanted, in a certain way, the reader, the reader to be in the position of the parents. So to know some things, but not everything. So that was the narrative tension yeah. that you found, was yeah. in the, like, I don't understand the ambiguities. Exactly. And one of the interesting things is that 
your French readers apparently are more comfortable with that ambiguity. What was, what's been the reaction that you've heard from readers here? You know, I, I heard uh, a question that I've never heard in, in France is, what is the message of the book? What did you want to convey? And what I heard also, and I was very surprised by, by this question, is, uh, so Miriam, she's a bad person. I, I don't like Miriam. She's not uh, sympathetic. And this is I think the mother, Miriam. Yeah, the mother. I think she's a, a bad mother and she made a lot of mistakes. And um, I, th- I think it's very surprising to judge character so, so much and to have a, a moral way of, of uh, reading a novel. What did you answer when someone said, well, what is the message? How do you answer there that question? There is no message. I say that I think that literature is here to ask questions, not to answer questions. And uh, uh, I think that a novel is not a trial. We are not here to judge uh, characters. And maybe that's why I write. I write because uh, literature is a space where you can stop judging people and try just to understand them. Even people who are very, very different from you, even people who are monstrous. You know, I was uh, very fascinated by a famous lawyer in France. She was the lawyer of a serial killer called uh, Guy Georges, Mm -hmm. who killed a lot of women. And when she decided to defend him, she was attacked in the press by people saying, you're a woman and you're defending a man who raped and killed women. And she said, yes, but I'm not here to say that he's not guilty. Of course he's guilty. But I'm just here to tell his story because even monsters have story. And for me, that's very important. I think it's what a novelist is has to do, to say that even monsters have a story. As the writer and the creator of Louise, do you felt like, did you feel as you were writing it, like you understood her? I can't say that I understood her, but I can say that I had empathy for her. Mm-hmm. But I don't understand her because she's a, she's a real mystery. She's so lonely and she's so... She's very silent. If you read the book, she she doesn't speak. She doesn't ex- express herself. And, you know, it's very interesting because we are speaking a lot about Me Too movement and women who are speaking out. And I think that's very important to, to speak out because a woman like Louise, she's a woman who is silent and she, she doesn't dare to say who she is and what she feels and she doesn't dare to ask for help. Maybe her whole life would have changed if she just had the courage to say to Miriam, please help me. My situation is very bad and I need someone to tell me what to do. Um, So I don't really understand her, no. One of the things I loved about the book is not just the character of of Louise, but of Miriam, because it's it's not just the story of a nanny who kills two children, um, but it is also about motherhood, contemporary motherhood, and the tugs that people, women who work, feel. And what's interesting about Miriam is you have her go through various stages of wanting to be home and then not wanting to be home. And and it's not quite as simple as saying like, well, this person is meant to be a working mother and this person is a stay-at-home mother. And it's, you know, sort of clear cut which one you are and how happy you are with it. And then also that she took such joy in her work. Yes. And she's... um She's very anxious. She's a very anxious woman. And at the beginning of the book, she's a mother and she takes care of her two children. And I think that she's very disappointed when she discovers that she's not so happy as a housewife. And um, so she 
it's very difficult for her to say to her husband, you know, I want to go back to work because that's not the the happy and fulfilling and extraordinary life that everyone told me about. You know, you're going to be a mother. That's going to be extraordinary, spending time with your children and playing with them. But actually, she's bored with her children and she feels lonely with her children. So... She wants to be a lawyer again, but at the same time, when she works a lot, she feels very guilty of not being with her children. So I think that she's a, a kind of woman like me, I feel the same, who always feels incomplete. Mm-hmm. When you're at work, you feel that you should be at home, and when you're at home, you have the feeling that you should be at work. Yeah, so we should just neatly slice ourselves into little pieces, and then we would be okay. Yes, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> so another decision you made, you start with the murder. Why did you do that? Because I, you know, I like um, the idea that the reader is going to be active when he reads the book, that he is the one who is going to investigate and to try to figure out why Louise did such a uh, monstrous act. I want, uh, I really want him to be involved in the, the reading of the, of the book. So, and I think that. If I begin with the murder, he's going to have the most important information. So, of course, he's going to look at every detail of the everyday light with more attention. And he's going to ask himself, oh, now maybe that's now that she's going to kill the children. Oh, that's now that she's um, that she became crazy. So I think that it's a, it was a, a way to to hook the, the reader's attention. Right. It's almost like, you know, in Hitchcock, where you yeah, show that exactly. the bomb is under the table and then yeah. you're the tension is when is it going to go off? What's going to happen? How exactly. Is it going to... I have to ask you to repeat a story that you told me yesterday. You're here in New York. You're traveling actually with your children and your husband. And so since you had work to do, you needed to hire a babysitter. Yes. Tell me about that. What happened? So, yes, so she she arrived and she was very late. Uh, she arrived at the hotel and she was crying. And I said, no, don't worry, that is no problem. We we can go to the restaurant later. And um, she asked me what I was doing in New York. And I said, I'm on a book tour. Oh, okay, what's the name of your book? And I said, The Perfect Nanny. Oh, wow, she said, so I hope I will be the perfect nanny. And I said, no, I hope you won't be <laughs> the perfect nanny because my nanny is not that perfect. And then when I came back from the restaurant, she said, oh, you know, I was on Amazon and I read about your book. I'm very sorry about what I said. <laughs> I won't be the perfect nanny. She was very nice. So far, so good. Yeah. All right, Leila, thank you so much for being here. Thank you. Leila Slimani is the author most recently of The Perfect Nanny. Alexandra Alter joins us now with news from the literary world. Hi, Alexandra. Hi, Pamela. What's new? Well, there is a book that came out this week that everyone has been anticipating for many, many months, and we actually broke the news that it was going to be published. This is James Comey's book, A Higher Loyalty. and Wait, it- what book? <laughs> sorry. I'm sorry. The look on it. your face. If only <laughs> listeners could have seen it. She looked very serious. <laughs> I was just, it's its early here in the morning in New York, and I was taking advantage of Alexandra's tender, fragile state. state. What book? Yes, this is a great question. James Comey's book, A Higher Loyalty, which he has been plugging in an, a tour that already feels endless, even though the book just came out on Tuesday. He's been on every major news show that you can imagine, and there's more to come. 
And of course, you know, getting attacked repeatedly by the president on Twitter, which as Michael Wolf demonstrated with Fire and Fury is a recipe for massive book sales. And I think, you know, this time the publisher, which is Flatiron, realized that they had to be ready with a lot of copies. When Michael Wolf's book came out, they had only printed 150,000 copies and quickly sold out. The first printing for James Comey's book is 850,000 copies, which is quite large. So These are the same parent company, right? Yes, they are both part of Macmillan. So Michael Wolf's book was published by Henry Holt. Flatiron is also part of Macmillan. They seem to be really locking up a lot of these kind of explosive Trump expose books. So it's it's been interesting to see. There's kind of a mixed reaction, I would say. Well, the commercial response has been incredibly strong. It's mm-hmm. number one on Amazon. I would be very surprised if it doesn't debut at number one on the Times list. But the kind of critical response in the response from the political sphere has been decidedly mixed. I think, you know, some people feel that Comey, by kind of holding all this information back until his book tour, was sort of taking advantage of, you know, the interest in in Trump and his particular perspective on Trump, given that he was fired by him and he's a potential star witness in the investigation into whether there was obstruction of justice. He sort of held back a lot of his views until his book tour. And I think, you know, some people feel like, well, you know, if you're going to present yourself as this morally upright person, you know, who's written a whole book about ethical leadership, this appears to be a bit self-aggrandizing. Like why wouldn't you have done this earlier, given, given your say, had your say spoken out publicly in sure. force before the book actually came out? Yeah, or exactly. I mean, there aren't huge news revelations in it, which mm-hmm. I think sort of, I think, diffuses some of that criticism. It's not like he was sitting on information that investigators needed to know or anything like that. A lot of it is his, you know, a lot of the interest in the book has to do with his personal opinions, and he is in a very good position to sort of express those. So I think, you know, yeah, you're seeing a mixed response. Other people set, are, are really embracing it and saying, well, he's really laying out in a very clear, cogent way. He's clearly a good writer and a sharp thinker what he thinks of the president. So much has been written about the book. So I don't want to tread over what everyone else has has said about it. But the things that I think have been less noted are, one, that he is a really good storyteller. I yes. don't think he had a co-writer on this. It's, he seems to have written it himself. And um, very quickly. Quickly. And and it it's well-paced. And one of the things that I think he was trying to do was to create a clearer narrative through his own personal and professional experience that would show you, that would sort of build a case that what happened with both the emails and with Trump, criticize them as you will, but were consistent with a sort of trajectory that he's followed. And I know that the story of his experience with the Ramsey rapist had already been public, but to me that was new. And yeah, it, it, I like, thought that was very interesting. Yeah. And it read like a, you know, I mean, a dark thriller, but what better kind of thriller is there? And then I also thought that he could be kind of funny and sort of quietly mm-hmm. devastating. His descriptions of Jeff Sessions, I thought, were especially kind of damning. He compared him to Alberto Gonzalez, but I think he says something, you know, like, but with none of the niceness or good intent. Um, <laughs> yeah, I think this was in Michiko Kakatani's review where she said he's a first-class noticer. Like, he's clearly, and I think that comes from his investigative background. He is very attentive to details and kind of has a good emotional read on people. And so I think that's a good point. Like, here in the book review, you know, the political world can be up in arms over this, but I think it's right to point out the sort of storytelling quality. Yeah, here we just care about the pros. (laughs) Yes, Um. (laughs) exactly. And so, of course, you know, I would say this is not going to be the last kind 
kind of tell-all to come out of the Trump administration following the huge— Now that we know how well they sell. They sell incredibly well, and there seems to be a good deal of turnover in the administration. I've heard that others are shopping books currently, and, you know, people who are considering leaving are calling up agents in Washington to say, what do you think I could get? One of the deals that I recently heard about from various publishers is Andrew McCabe, who was the deputy FBI director and was fired uh, recently. And he and Comey kind of, they worked together. McCabe was also involved in the you know early stages of the investigation into uh, possible coordination between the Russians and the Trump campaign. So he has a very interesting story to tell. He was fired, though, for apparently, according to the Inspector General's report, um, not being forthcoming about his role in planting a, a media story and perhaps violating the department's media policy in, in leaking some information or authorizing some leaks. So um, it's sort of interesting. He, I think he might be looking at Comey's book tour and thinking, you know, this is a way to tell your story. This mm-hmm. is a way to give your side of things. And um, he certainly has a long, interesting history in law enforcement, too. He was in the department for more than 20 years and worked on the Boston Marathon bomber case and the um, Benghazi case. So he has a, you know, a a number of kind of high profile cases that he can draw on. But it will be kind of interesting to see whether there's a limit to the public's appetite for these tell-alls, whether he can generate sort of Comey level of interest in his story, given that he's not as prominent, you know, as a a figure. And also, you know, the timing, who knows what we'll be talking about in a year or so when the book is likely to come out, whether... We'll be talking about Rod Rosenstein. Exactly. (laughs) (laughs) Exactly. Thanks. Alexandra. Thanks for having me. Joining us now, our critics, Dwight Garner, Paul Sagal, and Jen Salai. Hi, guys. Hey, Pamela. Pamela. Before we talk about what you all reviewed this week, let's do a little post-Pulitzer analysis here. What did you think? Well, you know, the fiction the, the fiction crowd, the, the scene was really sort of wide open this year. There wasn't really an obvious favorite. I mean, you had Gen- Jennifer Egan with her novel Manhattan Beach, which was kind of a throwback. It was well done. And Jasmine Ward has sort of wrapped up every prize there is the last few years, and maybe that was the reason not to give it to her this year. Andrew Sean Greer kind of came in as a dark horse. And interesting comic novel about writing, an atypical pick, I think. I think they were all, as you say, pretty atypical. I was happy to see The Idiot there, which was... And that was a finalist. A finalist, Two I kind love. of comic novels two as comic finalist novels, and you know? winner. And, and two, I mean, and The Idiot is also, as many people point out, a very strange novel. You know, the sort of second half is this... The first half is this very typical in certain ways college novel. And the second half is this sort of meandering, wandering around Hungary. Where's she wandering around? Hungary, yeah. And sort of unresolved. And, and it's... Uh, yeah, I mean, I think it's a novel that was very divisive. A lot of people loved it. A lot of people had lots of issues with it. But I was happy to see it because I think it took, you know, real risks and was trying to do something different. And the third book, the, the other finalist for fiction, was Hernan Diaz's In the Distance, which was also kind of a, not just a dark horse, sort of an unknown horse in the race. I could, but this is also why these prizes, like whatever we think of them, are so valuable because they do surface yes. stuff that even, like books exactly. that we missed. I had never heard of this. Yeah. No, I've not heard of it either. So. The nonfiction was maybe slightly less surprising. Slightly less surprising. It was James Foreman Jr.'s Locking Up Our Own, which was listed as one of our 10 best in the book review. Jennifer Sr. also reviewed it really positively for The Daily. And, you know, Foreman tells a really interesting story about how basically the beginnings of what we now call mass incarceration. And he focuses 
on Washington, D.C., and he asks a really sort of complicated question, which is essentially how in a city where a lot of the law enforcement as well as the leadership was African-American, how did mass incarceration essentially begin on their watch? And Foreman himself was a public defender in D.C. in the 90s. And so he starts with his own sort of personal anecdote, basically trying to get leniency for one of his defendants. And everybody involved in the case was black. Foreman is black. The judge was black. The prosecutor was black. The bailiff was black. And he wanted to essentially make the case that this was a kid who deserved some sort of leniency or some mercy. And the judge was essentially like, brought up Dr. Martin Luther King to say, King did not march so that you could do what you did. And it's a really sort of complicated, nuanced look at the history of it. And Foreman comes to the conclusion that essentially, if anything is going to change, I mean, it requires a really sort of wholesale rethinking of the criminal justice system and really focusing more on the notion of accountability rather than vengeance, because that's essentially what it's become. It's become extremely punitive. Also, he makes the point, though, that, you know, it's become sort of a conservative talking point that African-Americans have not paid enough attention to crime within the African-American community. And in fact, what Foreman says, no, this has been considered an urgent issue and also a civil rights issue from the beginning, but it's just that the options that were made available to the community were extremely limited at the time because there were plenty of people who were advocating not only for some measure of punishment, but also deterrence, prevention when it came to addiction programs, et cetera, et cetera. And so, you know, he really goes through that in the book and the book itself you know, it's pretty comprehensive, but it's also not one of these like 800-page books. It's, right. It's very readable and sharp and really well argued. It sounds like kind of the, the, the right nonfiction book to win a Pulitzer and its blending of history and argument. Yeah, and I think also sort of brings a new perspective to a debate that people are really talking about now. Dwight, you reviewed one of the other winners for general nonfiction. Yeah, Gulf by Jack E. Davis. It's a big and, and quite well-wrought book of history that does, I think, four things really well. One, it, it's it's a book about dispossession. It really digs deeply. And I, I partly grew up down there, and I didn't know – and I've done some historical work down there and didn't know. He digs up a lot of new information about the indigenous people who were basically just, you know, murdered in Florida and, and visits some of the, the, the mounds in which some, some of them were buried. And he's very good on the, the despoilation of Florida, I mean, both in terms of the overfishing and just, you know, as Johnny Mitchell would say um, – turn down the trees, put up a parking lot, what's happened to Florida in terms of overdevelopment. He's great on oil and what oil drilling in the Gulf has done to the ecosystem. Did I say there are four things he did well? Maybe there are only three, but I'm sure there's another one <laughs> that I'm forgetting now. But, but you know, it's impressive history and interesting. All right, let's talk a little bit about what else happened this week in terms of your own reviewing. Pearl, you reviewed a novel by a writer that probably many of our readers and listeners are not familiar with. I know, which drives me crazy. I feel like she's been on the like precipice of fame in this country for like 20 years. Mm-hmm. And like every book, I'm like, this will be the book. She's so interesting. Her name is Yoko Tawada. She's Japanese, but she's lived in Germany for, for years and since she was 22. Um, I think she moved in the 80s. And she writes in Japanese and German 
whichever mood strikes her, sometimes in the same book, and then translates it into both languages. And she gets compared to Kafka a lot. That's very surreal. She's interested in in how when we write about animals, we can write about otherness and immigration. But she's funny. She's light. And she's a new book called The Emissary, which is not funny. And it is not light. <laughs> but it's very good in certain ways. And it's this dystopian look at, at Japan after some unnamed disaster. And children are being born as old people. And the old people are endlessly robust. And society is just crumbling. And it's the story of this great-grandfather who's caring for his son. I'm sorry, his great-grandson. And essentially watching him die. And what I think I talk about in my review is the sort of limitations of beautiful prose. She's really a gorgeous writer and she really understands, especially with her interest in translation, what language can do. She just understands it from a really interesting mechanical standpoint. When you're in her sentences, you really, they're a trip. Each sentence is a little journey. But you know, the, it's it's a beautiful setup for a book that never quite congeals. It never really becomes more than its premise, than its amazing, horrifying situation. But that said, it's 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 slight. It's it's really gorgeous for pages on end, and it's a good introduction. Although, if you haven't read Tawada, I suggest you start with "The Bridegroom Is a Dog," which is about just that, and it's it's very funny and filthy and very very strange and. Um, I highly recommend it. The one before this was the Memoirs, of, of, a, memoirs, of, memoirs of a Polar, of a polar bear, bear, which is about three generations of a polar bear family that are also, they're, they're circus animals, but they're also a, a highly uh, literary family. Mm-hmm. And uh, their memoirs are highly sought after. And so it's a little bit, of, it's about Knut, that famous polar bear in Germany, who became a sensation and died. But it's also very much about the experience of of being an immigrant and of being watched and of being looked at and being somebody who's hyper-conscious and made to feel hyper-conscious of your every gesture and of your every intonation. And it's very painful reading, very beautiful reading. I loved your description of that. So the sort of migratory life of the polar bear, like yes. that they're born in... They don't They don't need visas. They shouldn't need visas. <laughs> <laughs> what did you review this week, Dwight? You reviewed two books of poetry two by books writers poetry. I love. Yeah, they're, uh, they're both terrific. It's, it's interesting. You know, these two poets have both become sort of cultural politicians, impresarios. Kevin Young is now a poetry editor at The New Yorker. He also runs the Schomburg Center in Harlem, which is where I go work quite often in their reading room. And Tracy K. Smith, who is the poet laureate now. I believe I believe Tracy Smith is the fifth African-American poet laureate. Kevin Young is the first black editor, poetry editor of The New Yorker. Poets in power. Exactly. They're quite good. I would say that I revere Kevin Young and love his poetry. It, it's just ripe to bursting with, with culture, with food, with needs, with wants. It's funny. It's it's a lot on his feet. It's a lot of fun. It's just uh, more, more, more. He's a putter in her. I respect Tracy K. Smith. Her, her her new book of poems, I don't think it's quite on par with her last one, uh, Life on Mars, which won the Pulitzer Prize. The new one, though, it's very methodical. It's very wary. It's very of its moment, I think, with the world waiting and watching what politically is going to happen in Washington. A lot of the poems are sort of found poems using letters from the Civil War, from black soldiers and their families who fought, and the, and the poems are constructed out of this original language, and those are quite moving. She's just very deliberate here, and I think the book in its way is, 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 is quite moving. I have a question. So as these two writers have become more famous and more prominent, do you think, and you, you are so familiar with their work, are they becoming safer too, or do you think they're still taking risks? Or, you know, the question I'm asking, are they becoming more politic as they've, they've become the faces of these That's public institutions? That's a good institutions? question. It's a good question. Uh, Kevin, Kevin Young's book, I would say not, although this book he flashes back a lot to his childhood. Mm-hmm. So there's, I wouldn't say that's that's receding in any way from the moment, but he's interested in this book in his Midwestern childhood. And um, there's a good deal of 
of so fond memory and also darker memory of, of racism growing up where he did. And Tracy K. Smith, I think, is still is still moving forward in, in a rather grand way. So I, I don't think that I found her first two books difficult to read, and I reread them again. I still find them. They move a little bit too sideways sometimes for me, the poems in them. And I think she really found her voice with Life on Mars, in, in, in my, from my point of view anyway. I love that and I think she's still in that groove. She's still in a great groove. And I, I, you know, I can't wait to read what she does next. Jen, you reviewed Lawrence Wright's new book. I did, yes, God Save Texas, which, you know, I think is just really a, not only a lovely book, but also a really thoughtful exploration of a place where he's lived more than half his life. He's also, I mean, he's just such a good storyteller. I, yeah. I, I, you know, the way that the way that he structures his books, and I kind of found that, I, I don't know if he does this in God Saves Texas, but in The Looming Tower and in Going Clear, his book about Scientology, The Looming Tower, of course, being about sort of origins of the war on terrorism, he does this thing where he, he will start midway through the sort of current crisis and then take you up to this cliffhanger and then he goes all the way back to the back yeah like and you can sense i guess that he's a playwright and that he really thinks about pacing and yeah and i mean everybody started doing that now since you <laughs> haven't you noticed yes like, mm-hmm. yes well it's that such, a, yeah. such a great structure yeah. For him. yeah i mean this book is is interesting in the sense that there's a way in which i mean each chapter really holds up on its own as sort of a discrete piece. And actually, I think maybe a couple of pieces have appeared in The New Yorker where he's a staff writer. But, and and it, there's sort of a rambling quality to it, but he is just such a good storyteller that even as he's sort of plucking out anecdotes and then pointing out connections that might seem tenuous at first, but they actually really resonate, you know, where it just, works. It just sort of holds together in a really interesting way. And he he's really interested in how things play out at a very concrete level in Texas. So there's a way in which because he's trying to sort of look at the myth, but also point out the way in which the myth doesn't fit the reality. So he presents just all this sort of weird stuff. And I couldn't I mean, I couldn't really get that much into the review. But there was I mean, I had somehow never noticed that Alex Jones apparently appears in two Richard Linklater movies. Did you know this? Wait, the Alex Jones? Yes. <laughs> yes. Why? Why? Because they knew each other from Austin and Richard Linklater was just Basically, I think said at some point, "Oh, I thought that this guy was sort of strange and interesting." You know, I have not to say wrong. that's, that's like one of the best plugs just for books in general, where you, when you have this, this, these, lo- these, these large scale narratives, and they can write about people sort of way back when that that always gets left off the cutting room floor in any news story. Yes, yes, and so he has. I mean, he has a lot of that stuff. I mean, I, I he doesn't say it in the book, but I would imagine he just must be keeping track of stuff that he encounters. And so the book itself, you know, he really has extremely mixed feelings about Texas. And the fact that he lives in Austin, I think, is pretty telling because Austin, at least in terms of the state lawmakers, is considered essentially like the bad child of Texas. You um, had this great, was it, I don't know if it was right or you. Oh, I think it's right, probably. <laughs> about the spore. Oh, that's right, yeah. What does he say? He said uh, something to the effect of Austin is the spore of the California fungus <laughs> that is infecting America or something like that. And yeah, essentially, you know, he really does look at how California is one of the big bet noirs, but also Austin is like the little 
bet noir. It's a little too bright, yeah. a little speck of, of California exactly. that's drifted over the exactly. nation too. All right, there's an odd challenge in writing about right. Yes, right, right, which is essentially, you know, when we quote a writer, it's ideal to say so and so writes, but you can't say right writes. So there's a lot of right says, right remarks, <laughs> right notes, right notes, right I notices. Yeah, exactly. According so. to right. <laughs> That's, exactly. a, that's funny. Do you all think a lot about that in terms of just the rhythm of your language and varying that in your reviews and, and avoiding? Are there any other like noteworthy pitfalls? It's there are pitfall only pitfalls. <laughs> yeah, you can try too hard to, not to say rights every time. You end up sounding yeah. ridiculous if you say right, observes exactly. or something well, exactly. too often. That kind of elegant right. variation does not. Especially for no. somebody like Wright, who's just such a good, I mean, he, right. he, he writes these sentences that you know, they seem so sort of effortless, even though there's a lot going on. And so to just say something like he observes, Mm-mm. write notes. I know. Just, yeah. So I, I reluctantly put right says, yeah. I think, a few few times. But. Ladies and gentlemen, the role of the critic is hard. <laughs> All right. Thanks, guys. <laughs> Thank thanks, you, Pamela. Remember, there's more at nytimes.com slash books, and you can always write to us at books at nytimes.com. Inside the New York Times Book Review is produced by Pedro Rosado from Headstepper Media. Thanks for listening. For the New York Times, I'm Pamela Paul. Pamela Paul.